Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with James Kovacevic. And obviously, if you're listening to Rob's Reliability Project, you probably know who James Kovacevic is. He's been on the show. I think this is your fourth time, James. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks. And I think you are correct. It is at least my third, potentially fourth time on the show. So thanks for having me back. No, I appreciate you having you coming on. And then also, you know, we just got off recording my appearance on your show again. And, you know, this is a great learning and sharing relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, everyone has different experience that we can leverage, different knowledge and expertise. So why not share it and make the, make the world a better place? That's right. And hopefully everyone can level up. So James is the principal instructor for Erudicio and he's also the host of Rooted in Reliability podcast. So if you're listening to this show and you haven't checked out James's podcast, Rooted in Reliability, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you found this show and check out his, maybe subscribe to his as well. James, what I wanted to have you on today was to talk about planning. It's it's something that you know I've wanted to talk about for a few months. I don't know how I didn't have somebody on yet to talk about it. But before we get into some of the best practices, can you just give us an introduction to like what is planning and what are the benefits of, of doing planning correctly? I want to clarify something first uh, before we dive into that, because I think understanding what I mean by planning is very important. Planning and scheduling are two different things. All right. So that being said, planning to me is really about developing a plan to reduce waste within the maintenance department. All right. So that may be through a job plan. It might be through a PM routine, but it's really developing a plan to reduce waste. So those wastes might be, you know, the technician taking multiple trips to the storeroom, having to look for information, having to look for tools, those sorts of things. Planning is all about reducing that. So we use a job plan generally as our way to do that. And planning is developing that job plan to a level of detail that eliminates those wastes. Now, that level of detail may vary by company based on the skill level of the technicians and so on and so forth. But I think there's some basic things that need to be included in that. Some of the benefits, well, obviously, 
we reduce some of those maintenance wastes, such as travel, looking for information, so on and so forth. It also allows us to plan for and prepare for our maintenance activities. It's generally much cheaper to do planned maintenance than it is to do unplanned maintenance for a variety of reasons. One is those wastes mentioned. Another, another big reason is expediting spare parts or excess production downtime, those sorts of things. So we can eliminate all those and really deliver improve value to the organization. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm really glad you drew a line between planning and scheduling because I also wanted to do this during the show because that's why I didn't want to say, I want to have you on talking about planning and scheduling. So for me, what I've always heard is planning is the, you know, the what, the how, and the the tools and scheduling is the who and the when. Do you, do you see sort of a distinction there or do you have it defined differently in your mind? No, I almost exactly the same. So for planning, I want to know what, what are we doing? What tools are required? What materials are required? What skills are required? Those sorts of things. I want to know the how. Now, when I say how, I don't necessarily mean we're going to have a step-by-step instruction on accomplishing every little step within that job. We want to write that job plan to the level of the skill of technicians, including performance specifications. Those are my big things. If we have to align a pump, what alignment tolerances are acceptable versus not, right? Those are the key things in the how part. But I also include a why in the planning function. And here's why. We send a mechanic to go replace a a valve. Mechanic walks over there, looks at it, sees it's leaking, tightens up the packing. It stops leaking for a couple minutes. They leave and we get a complaint from operations the next day, next day that it's still leaking. So we once again, send him out to do, or we send out a mechanic to replace that valve. He sees it's leaking, tightens up the packing again and walks away. Well, we continue in this cycle where they're not really replacing the valve. They just keep trying to tighten the packing. So I always include a why in there. So mechanics understand why we might be replacing a valve versus just tightening the packing or something of that nature. So for example, replace the valve because we have tried tightening the packing the last five days and it is still not stopped. Right. So it provides some awareness of what else is going on and why we've chosen a particular path to do that job. I, I really like that. And I think it also, you know, it also builds trust and that relationship to the shop floor. Like, even though maybe you didn't do it like person to person conversation wise, having that included is, you know, it's, it's definitely something where they can go, well, at least someone thought about it first. Yeah. And I don't expect planners or, you know, to develop big why statements. It could be a simple one or two sentence why, and that's it. We don't need elaborate, just enough to show that we know the history and why we chose that approach. I I really like that one. Now, James, what I've seen super like really common throughout the industry is that planning and scheduling, like typically it's one guy and they do both roles. And I kind of see it as, you know, similar to somebody who's a maintenance and reliability engineer. Should we separate those roles or should it be the same person? So this is a great debate that is raged on for, for between a variety of people. And I think, in my opinion, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. And I'll explain why. So from a, if we have a dedicated planner and all they're doing is planning jobs, 
Then we have a scheduler that goes out and micro schedules and does all that. That can work. And there's some distinct advantages. Now, our scheduler doesn't need to be as familiar with the equipment, have as much skill level, those sorts of things, because it's all clearly defined on that job plan. So now we can better leverage the existing skills we have with a dedicated planner who has nothing to do with scheduling. They're not going to scheduling meetings. They're not dealing with any of that. So we get better utilization, better utilization of their skills from that, that standpoint. But I've also seen it where if a planner plans a job, they know skill levels pretty easily. They know who on the crew can do the work. They can easily plug that into a schedule. But I think if we have one person that shares the planning scheduling role, scheduling needs to be be defined a little bit differently. So if we have a planner slash scheduler, what what they're doing from a scheduling standpoint is just putting it on a schedule for next week. They're not micro scheduling to the day or the shift or the individual. They're putting it on the schedule for a week. And then it's up to the maintenance supervisor, uh, lead hand, whoever is running that crew to micro schedule that individual work to the individual to the individual craftsperson at, the, at that particular day. Now, if we have a dedicated scheduler, fine. Then we can micro schedule to the day, to the crew, to the person, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think that's the big difference when you have a dedicated scheduler versus a planner slash scheduler. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I really like that approach. Do you, th- do you think that, like, given that we have these automated systems, do you think that we could automate the scheduling role if we could properly identify like everything in a job plan? To a point. I don't think we can fully get there uh, for a variety of reasons. Think of a typical day at a production facility. The production schedule may change. You may have guys call in sick. You may have to schedule overtime. You may have to do all those things. And that's why I like having the maintenance supervisor being able to micro schedule his crew. If someone calls in, he can react. He can make the adjustments on that schedule. If we have extra extra guys in on overtime, we can have them in for that as well. There's a variety of different issues that come up. Even just consider a breakdown. If you have a schedule well-defined and you have a breakdown, what do you do? All right. If we leave it to automated systems, what's it going to do? Is it going to prioritize that first? Is it not? And so on and so forth. So that's why I think we can bring it to a point where we're scheduling out large buckets, but micro scheduling that has, it's very, very dynamic. It has to be handled at the supervisor or lead hand level to be effective. But I think in order to make that work, we need to have a good prioritization system in place. So they understand what work do we drop? What work can we do? And so on and so forth. And yeah, that's, that's definitely for sure. And what do you see as common practice for like I've seen most, like most CMMS programs, they have some sort of rating system, whether that's one to five or one to three, where one is critical or five is critical, like whatever, however the order goes. But what's what's some of the common practices for ranking whether work's critical or not urgent? Well, I think one mistake I see is just relying on that simple one to five or one to 10 scale in the CMMS. To me, that is not enough. Um, we need to consider different things. So if we take a step back and we think about what goes into developing that work priority, we should be looking at what type of work is it? So is it a PM? Is it a health and safety issue? Is it a breakdown? In addition to the asset criticality, if it's a critical asset with a breakdown, that's going to be a high priority job. 
if it's an office with a broken plug, probably not the most critical job, right? We got to get to it, but it's not a schedule breaker. We're not shutting down the plant because of it. So we need to both consider the type of work, the asset it's on. The other thing I think that needs to be considered in there is how old that work order is. And here's why. And some people may disagree, but if we want operations to buy into our planning and scheduling process, we want them to submit work requests ahead of time and not wait till stuff breaks and so on and so forth. We need them to believe that when they put it in to the CMMS, it's not going into the black hole of maintenance, that we actually are going to get to it. We are going to look at it, even if it's low priority work. So we use the age factor to help bump up that criticality over time. All right. So we almost have a a three-dimensional matrix or three-dimensional cube that we're using to evaluate the work type, the asset criticality, and the age. Once we multiply those three factors together, then we'll get a particular number that we should use in a CMS for your one to five scale. Now within those one to five scale or one to 10 scale, whatever the CMS is using, I like to have a almost a service level agreement built into that. Meaning that if I pick one being the most critical, it's going to say emergency or high priority less than one day. So everyone knows that when it's there, we're going to try and get it done within one day. If it's a level two, then maybe it's going to be, you know, less than 72 hours, level three, so on, you know, within two weeks, level four, within four weeks and level five, greater than four weeks or something like that. So that way everyone understands what it actually means to be a one versus a five and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that what I've seen at least is either everybody puts every work order in at a one or everybody puts in every work order at a three, right? So it's, they don't really have a process for defining. So that functionality and that kind of methodology for ranking work, it really just goes down to how does the scheduler feel on that day or how does the planner feel, those kind of things. Well, I think what also should happen too is in a lot of organizations that I worked with, we've worked to implement a a daily planning meeting almost. And in that daily planning meeting, you have the planners, you might have a maintenance supervisor, maybe an operations representative, and they literally look through all the new work requests that came in the last 24 hours. And they use a basic methodology, whether it's a decision tree or some sort of matrix that says, okay, based on what we're seeing now, based on our consensus, we need to do this within, you know, within the next 24 hours, in which case the maintenance supervisor is there. We hand it off because we're not planning it. If it's something that needs to be done two weeks or three weeks from now, now we know roughly when we can do it. We roughly tentatively schedule that and we start the planning process, getting materials and all that stuff ready for that. So we're building a cascading schedule four, six, eight weeks out um, based on that initial prioritization. And by having that cross-functional group do that, they can identify when everyone always just puts a one or a three and actually prioritize it properly, not just from a work completion standpoint, but also from a planning standpoint. Which ones do we have to plan first? Yeah, for sure. Another common mistake I see when I've been out in industry is sometimes companies have planners that have never performed the work themselves. And it tends to generate some frustration by the shop floor because either they're missing steps, they're missing parts, they're missing tools, or they're recommending something that doesn't really make sense. Now, 
why do you think that that's such a common problem? And why does like why is it useful that a planner will have done the maintenance tasks before? All right. Before I get into this, I just want to say one thing. I have never seen a perfect job plan. It doesn't matter if that planner has done that job a hundred times before. I have yet to see a perfect job plan. (laughs) So that being said, the whole idea of planning is to eliminate delays and to be a continuous improvement process. All right. So if we send out a job plan that's not perfect, we need to capture that feedback and improve it for next time. And this is how we're going to get better over time. We're I would love to get perfect job plans, but if that's what we were aiming for, we would get maybe one job plan every completed every two weeks, and that's not effective. So we need to make sure that, or we need to understand that they won't be perfect and have a mechanism to improve that. Now, that being said, some of the best planners I see are those that are experienced that have come from the shop floor. They've done that job or similar work in the past. Now, if they have not done that particular task, once upon a time, there are different methodologies to make sure that we don't miss things, to make sure that we get a decent job plan together. You can use job mapping, for example, to break down the job into the major tasks and then each one of those tasks into steps. Using that methodology, we'll get a fairly good, fairly accurate job plan. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to get us most of the way there. Now, if we have someone who's not experienced on the shop floor, that or has little experience on the shop floor, then we, you know, we need to make sure we have existing job plans they can look at, they can reference, um, even for a different asset. We can use that as a basis to start. We can teach them the job mapping process, um, and they'll still get a fairly decent result with that. Now, does that answer your question? Yeah, it definitely does. And, and I guess like to you, James, what does that feedback process look like? So the feedback process generally going to, it could happen a couple different ways. Um, but that feedback process, we need to know from the, the crafts out on the floor, what materials did we miss? What extra materials that we did we give you that you didn't need? What tools that did we miss? What major steps or performance specifications did we miss? Um, were there any tips or tricks that we should add to this job plan? How much time did it actually take you? Um, those sorts of things. We want to capture all that so we can continue we can improve our job plan. Now, some organizations that are using various CMMSs, sometimes they'll put it in like the confirmation text or something of that nature. They'll feed it back that way. So the planner can just run a report and see all the feedback every morning. Others write it on the work order and hand it to the planner. Either one works. The key thing for me though, is that we need to make sure we act on that feedback relatively quickly. Because if I have a mechanic that marks it up a weekly PM. We don't act on it. We re- they get assigned that PM next week and those same issues are still on that job plan. Do you think they're going to give us feedback ever again? Probably not. So we need to be able to act on that quickly. And if we don't make time to do that as part of a planner, we're missing a huge portion of our job. Uh, Doc Palmer, uh, I had an opportunity to introduce and moderate him at Reliable Plan a couple of weeks ago. And he continues to say that the planner is the craft historian. He's the one who captures that history for all the craft. So they don't have to remember that stuff and we can share it. That is a good portion of the job, not just planning jobs, but capturing that feedback, acting on that feedback. And if we're missing out on that piece, I don't think we're going to get the benefit that we should from planning 
to begin with. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen this with reliability initiatives, you know, stuff like, hey, this thing's breaking, you should fix it. And if that, it's the same thing. If we're not acting on that information, we're losing a ton of value from our people. Exactly. It's, it's, you're right. It's the exact same thing. So some of the planners that I've been adjacent to in a few organizations, they've spent a lot of time trying to acquire parts or sourcing, you know, being part of the sourcing process. Should they be like, what's the best practice for that? I have a specific opinion on that. Um, so to me, the planners are in, cha- in charge of specifying the parts required. So what they should be doing is identifying the specific parts. Now, if that is a part that we don't have set up in the CMMS, then they have to get the specifications, all the information for it, and pass that on to the storeroom, the purchasing group, whoever it is, to make sure we get the right part. Now, once they do that once, it should be set up in the CMMS as a non-stock part so we don't ever have to go do that again. Right? There may be times where they have to get on the phone and call a vendor or a supplier to get some information to make sure they have the right specification, they have the right part identified, and so on and so forth. That's fine. But they should only be doing that once for that particular part. It shouldn't be part of their everyday job to get quotes, source, write the POs, do all that stuff. If they're doing that, we're not utilizing their skills, their knowledge, and their abilities to plan jobs and really drive down those wastes within maintenance. Now, does this also apply to job kitting? Like, let's say we're doing kits for our PMs. Would that apply to that as well? Like, that's a warehousing task, not a planning task. I believe it is a warehousing task. A lot of of people in the storeroom or warehouse will say, well, we don't have time for that. Well, you're going to pick those parts anyways, whether you pick them and put them in a kit, whether you, or you're going to pick them when the guy shows up and is waiting at the window, you have to pick those same parts. All we're doing is we're doing it ahead of time. And if you do it right, you can actually improve the speed at which parts are kitted because now you may have four or five jobs you're kidding for. You go get all the bearings in one shot, put those in the appropriate bins. Then you go to the other part of the storeroom, get all those parts, put them in the appropriate bins and so on and so forth. So kidding. And picking those parts doesn't really add a tremendous amount of time. All we're doing is we're pulling it forward of when the technician shows up instead of when he instead of when he shows up to stand there. Now that being said, it should be a warehouse activity. But I've seen some organizations where they want the planner to verify the kit. Now, is verifying the kit? Would you say that's a best practice, or that's something that they shouldn't be doing? So I think the kit should be verified. Who does it, I think, really depends on the size of that storeroom. And there's a few other factors, but if we only have a single person in the storeroom, they pick the kit, can they verify their own work? No. Exactly. So in that case, we'll pull a planner to verify kits You know, once a day, once a week, something of that nature. Or maybe you're pulling a maintenance supervisor, but we need someone to verify those kits. Now, if we have a larger storeroom where we have four or five people within the storeroom plus a supervisor then yeah, we'll just use the storeroom to build the kit and then verify it. So it's hard to say because I know some storerooms have a single person for all three shifts. So there you need to, yeah, we may need to do some give and take with the planner. Okay, storeroom kits, planner verifies, that's fine. Now, when we're looking at planning, 
like a lot of the times we're trying to understand if it's working or if it's not working. Like what are some good KPIs for assessing whether our planning's effective? So I think there's a few. We need to look at from a planning perspective, job plan accuracy. And when I say that, I don't mean we're going to check the accuracy of every single job that's out there. It doesn't work that way. Rob, have you ever worked on your own car? Yep. So, you know, sometimes when you go to do brakes or something, sometimes everything works out perfect and you spend an hour and they're all done. And there's other times it's eight hours out there, eight hours later, and you still don't have them finished. Usually it's the eight hours. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're going to see that variation with maintenance work as well. You know, our estimates could be off by as much as 100% either way. But what's interesting is if you plot out at a macro level, all the jobs we do over the course of a week or a month or something of that nature, you're going to see that they're going to average out to plus or minus 10 or 15%. That's when we, how we measure planning accuracy is over that larger aggregate scale. All right. So that's one that I look at. Another one that I like looking at is job plans created. And I'm not talking just, you know, basic job plans, but I'm talking a good detailed job plan that we're going to use for PMs, rebuilds, those sorts of things. How many of those good ones are we creating in a week? And that that's going to change over time. If I'm just starting out on doing planning properly, my goal might be one or two good job plans per week to start. I'm going to plan all the other stuff, how I've been doing it, but I'm going to take the time and do one or two good ones a week. As we get better and we can start leveraging those good job plans, we're not having to reinvent the wheel all the time, then that's going to go up because now we have more time to do that. So those are some, if you include the scheduling portion of it, then, you know, I want to see, you know, schedule adherence, PM compliance, how much time we spent on planned work, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, no, those are some good ones there. And I guess one, one KPI I've seen it's not, I guess it's not really a KPI, but it's a metric that people use when they're discussing planning is the crafts to planning ratio. And like, I think the SMRP best practice, the, the metric is it's supposed to be 15 craft for every planner. Now, most sites seem to have less planners than that. Like what's the downside of not having enough planners? All right. So I think that 15 to one is a sliding scale based on the maturity of the work management process. When that work management process is relatively new, there's not a good job plan library, BOMs are complete, a lot of stuff like that. We're going to need a 15 to one ratio because it's going to take plan. It's going to take planners a lot more time to develop job plans, get everything ready, get it organized and so on and so forth. As we start to grow that library and become more mature, I've seen organizations where they'll have 25 to one and they're successful, but they have those foundations in place. They have the job plan library, they have bill of materials, they have equipment manuals organized, they have all of them available, they have drawings and those sorts of things. So I think that 15 to one will change based upon the maturity of the organization. Now, if we have less than what we need, depending on where we're at in our maturity, we're going to see a reduction in the efficiency of our technicians. We'll see more trips to the storeroom. We'll see more coordination delays. You know, people looking for tools or information. We'll see those sorts of things and we won't truly get the full value of planning. 
It's not to say we're not getting any value, but we won't be getting as much as we could. Yeah. And I mean, those are some, some big things. And I'm sure all our listeners have an example of just planners being just slammed with everything that they have to do. And it doesn't make it a very effective process. No. And I think there's, you know, planners can do some certain things to her, start helping themselves, you know, take the time, do those one or two good job plans a week, right? Do it for rebuilds, do it for reoccurring jobs so you can leverage them quickly. Even if it's for a specific asset that you have multiples across the facility, a pump, for example, even if they're different operating contexts, re- replacing the impeller for those or doing a PM is going to be fairly similar. So now we have a template we can take and build on incorporating the operating context for the next ones. Um, so we're not having to develop that from scratch. So start developing those job plans that we can leverage. Um, start working on bill of materials. I'm not suggesting you sit there and type up every bill of material that you have in the facility, but make sure that as you add parts to the CMMS, they get assigned to a specific asset as part of that addition process. Do little things like that. It's going to take a while, but they'll slowly add up and start making lives that much easier and reduce how much they're being slammed. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess to jump off what you mentioned with templates, like when I was previously in my career, uh, the maintenance department had co-op students building 17,000 work order templates to fit most of the maintenance work that was supposed to happen. Should we try to build job plans for literally everything or where should we draw the line? So I think I think there's a – when I think of planning, I think of two types. I think of minimum and extensive planning. So – and I think that's the cutoff point. Minimum planning, those are those jobs that are, you know, every organization will have different cutoffs, but they're short, easy jobs. One or two hours, minimal parts, maybe no parts, um, you know, replacing a half inch ball valve on a compressed airline. Is that a very extensive job? Probably not. What about hanging a bulletin board? Because we all know maintenance gets to do all that stuff as well. Those those are minimum, minimum planning jobs. All we're going to do is identify the resources maybe parts, safety, that's it. We rely on the skill of the technician to get that stuff done because it's not worth the effort to plan those, at least not when we're first starting down our journey. Then we have our extensive planning. That's where we're going to go through and develop a good job plan, get material lists, tool lists, those sorts of things, performance specifications. And those might be more complex jobs, four hours or more, multiple craftsmen, uh, lots of parts required, those sorts of things. So I think we're not going to plan to the utmost detail every single job. We need to have that cutoff point, make sure our planners are aware of when is it acceptable to do minimal versus extensive planning. Absolutely. And so James, last couple of questions here. What are some common mistakes that you see people make in planning and how do we avoid them? So I think some of the biggest mistakes I I see when I'm talking with planners is they're trying to build the perfect job plan. So I think going back to what I said earlier, we will never, ever plan the perfect job plan. So stop trying. Do what we can, minimize some of those delays in those ways, and then we'll use the feedback to improve it and minimize even more delays next time. So I think trying to plan the perfect job plan is one of the issues. The second one is not utilizing that feedback. 
if we try to roll a plan of scheduling, we ask for feedback and we don't use it, it's going to be very, very hard to get that feedback moving forward. We likely never will, or at least the level we want. So I think those are two things. Yeah, those are some good ones. And finally, do you have any top planning tips that we haven't talked about? So to me, one of the big, big things I always say is start small, one or two good job plans per week. You start there. Yes, it seems slow. It seems like you're never going to get out of it. But eventually, if you pick those right jobs, you're going to start seeing them come back up and up and up all the time. And you're going to minimize how much time you spend planning on those jobs, giving you more time to do others. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is really just make sure at a minimum, we have the craft buy-in. So depending on who you talk to, some people will say we need everything to be proceduralized step-by-step what technicians do. I say we write to the skill, the lowest skill level that's going to do that, that job. All right. Don't write it any further or any more detailed than that, but write to the lowest skill level that will actually do that job and make sure we have those performance specifications on there. We will never write on a job plan and tell a welder how to set up his welder, how to clean the steel. We won't tell him that he's a welder. He knows how to do that stuff. But what we might say is give him some specifications around tolerances, around quality, around stuff like that. So he knows what he has to achieve, how can he measure his success. But we're not going to tell him how to set up a welder and whatnot, if that makes sense. Yep. No, those are some good tips there. So James, obviously people listening, they should go check out Rooted in Reliability podcast. Do you have anything else to plug? Are you going to be at any conferences coming up? So I am at the SMRP Symposium in June in Phoenix. I'll be presenting a paper and a workshop there. I will be at the SMRP conference in October. I'm presenting two two papers and a workshop there. I will be at PMAC, although I don't know if I'll be presenting anything yet, uh, but I will be at PMAC. And that's it. That's on my agenda right now. So... Yeah. And I mean, for people listening, definitely, if you're at those conferences, connect with James and and also check out erudicio.com, E-R-U-D-I-T-I-O.com. They put out some great content as well. And then they're also, you know, you guys put on some cool training courses and some different stuff there. Yeah, we uh, we stay fairly busy. We also come up with some videos all like you, like yourself. Um, Although not as often as you. So definitely, uh, definitely enjoying all the videos you put out. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And definitely like, uh, you know, actually like, like some of the stuff that Sean has done and some of the stuff that I, I guess Nancy Regan has done as well. They kind of inspired me to, to make some videos and to, to bring some humor back into reliability. Well, we got to keep it lighthearted. It's a, not always the most exciting topic for everyone. So we got to make sure we keep it interesting and keep everyone engaged. Yeah, that's true. And and it's nice to bring some, you know, some, some lightheartedness because a lot of the times, a lot of our career, sometimes it gets frustrating and we get a little down on ourselves. So it's, it's good to have a laugh every now and then. Absolutely. Awesome. So James, you know, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise once again with us. Oh, happy to come on. Anytime you need anything, you want me to come on and talk, talk about a topic, always open to it. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, it's definitely good to have you on and it's fun. So, 
and I look, I also look forward to seeing you soon again. I mean, I, I will be at PMAC, but we'll see the other ones probably not, but hopefully I'll see you this year. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So everyone who's listening, you know, I appreciate you guys listening so much. And I also appreciate you guys following the content. If you haven't yet, check out my new website, robsreliability.com. And if you haven't also sign up to the newsletter, there's some bonus content that's exclusive to the newsletter and you'll get a weekly newsletter every Monday morning.